Okay, at this time we're going to turn to the Word. We're going to start a new series this morning in the book of Habakkuk, or as some people say Habakkuk. There's different pronunciations in the English. The Hebrew is Havakuk, so um, just so you know the background there. So if you can look up the uh, prophet Habakkuk, that's how I'll say it, that's how I grew up saying it, and we will read the first four verses. I actually this morning will not be preaching from the book at all. We will be doing a historical sketch of the times that led up to and into the life of Habakkuk so that we can understand the context. And then next time, Lord willing, we will um, actually engage the text with exposition. So this morning is very much historical overview. So if you want to turn there, please, if you remember the order of the, uh, the minor prophets, you'll eventually go Nahum and then Habakkuk. So Habakkuk chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. And now let's also turn to uh, Chronicles, to Second Chronicles, chapter 36, the last chapter of Chronicles. And the reason we're going there is because that really gives you the times in which Habakkuk ministered. So we'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 21. 2 Chronicles 36, starting at verse 1. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's stead in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was twenty and three years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And the king of Egypt put him down at Jerusalem and condemned the land in an hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and turned his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was twenty and five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and his abominations which he did and that which was found in him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his stead. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months and ten days at Jerusalem, and did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And when the year was expired, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon and the goodly vessels of the house of the Lord, and made Zedekiah his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. 
And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon." And they burnt the house of God and brake down the walls of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years, which is seventy years. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what is recorded as it uh, talks about um, the, uh, the hardness of people's heart, and yet the great mercy you have, the wrath you pour out upon the disobedient, and the purposes you fulfill through the uh, the, the workings of history. Oh Lord, we pray that as we begin this series, that it would be edifying, that your name would be hallowed, or that you would bring us to repentance, confession, a real recognition of our need of you, our dependence upon you. Lord, break our pride. Help us to see our sin as you would see our sin, and to help us to see the Savior as you behold him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I definitely encourage you to have your Bibles open, and we're going to be just kind of looking through a number of passages this morning. And like I said, this is kind of a historical overview sermon, so it kind of blends between lecture and sermon a bit. So I have three points this morning. They are Habakkuk's context, secondly, Habakkuk's concern, and lastly, Habakkuk's king. So Habakkuk's context, concern, and king. So first of all, Habakkuk's context. So in order to understand Habakkuk, we need to know where and when he was in redemptive history. So stepping back, just so you get a little bit of an overview again, remember history is divided into two parts. We talk about B.C., which means before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So everything centers on Christ, right? He is the center point of history. Now, modern historians don't like that, and so they have just turned it into BCE, before Common Era, and Common Era, but they're kind of still stuck with that center point, and they don't know quite what to do with it. So it's kind of interesting. Now, just to scope back into biblical um, narrative, 
If we take the chronologies of the Bible as they are written, creation ends up being at about 4,000 B.C. before Christ. 4,000 years. You add 2,000 years to that. So 2,000 B.C. puts you in the time of Abraham. Add another 1,000 years to that. So 1,000 B.C. puts you in the time of Solomon and the building of the temple. So just some major signposts along the way. But after King Solomon, things go south for Israel. We know Israel gets divided into two kingdoms, right? We get the rebellion in the north, and the northern kingdom is then called Israel. And it contains the ten tribes. The southern tribe, or, or southern kingdom is two tribes, largely, Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom, now we start getting dates, is uh, brought into Assyrian captivity in 721 BC. So about 300 years after Solomon, the northern kingdom goes into captivity. And the, just so you know, the Assyrians were the most ruthless and barbaric people of history. They were incredibly ruthless. They were actually the people who invented crucifixion. So um, very, very barbaric people. Now, have you ever wondered... Why, if you know the map a little bit, northern and southern kingdom, it's not that big, right? Israel's not a big country. Why did Assyria not take Judah, the southern kingdom, captive at the same time? Have you ever asked that question? Because it was there for the pickings, right? It's a piddly nation, really. Well, you've got to remember biblical history here, because this is the days of King Hezekiah. In his days... Assyria indeed was at the very gates of Jerusalem. Don't forget that. They were there. Hezekiah's tunnel was constructed to avert the attack. And historians will say that Hezekiah's tunnel is one of the greatest engineering feats of history as his men carved 600 yards through solid stone. But salvation would not come from Judah's or Jerusalem's walls, nor from Hezekiah's feats. But it would come from the Lord himself. Remember, in 2 Kings 19.34, God says this, I will defend this city and save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. And the next verse tells us how God will do this. And the walls have nothing to do with it. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred, fourscore and five thousand, hundred and eighty-five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. God annihilated the armies of the powerful Assyrian nation. And they were set back so much that they did not continue in their siege on Jerusalem. That is a staggering display of God's might. But it continues on as God's, the irony of history, these redemptive reversals continue because Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, then goes back kind of with his tail between his legs and he gets murdered in his own temple by his own sons. It says in the Bible, 2 Kings 19, So Sennacherib, the king, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that Adramelech and Sherarezer, his son, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Eshrarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. You know, it's amazing. You think of Sennacherib. 
He's just had his entire army, his elite soldiers decimated, and he still persists in his idolatry. Remember in Isaiah that it was his very commander that had mocked Jehovah God. He says, what are your God, what's your God going to do? The other gods didn't save them. Well, God displays his might, and King Sennacherib still goes and bows down to his own gods. And the irony, the irony of it is that God destroys him at the very temple at which he worships by his own family. The human heart, we see, is more hardened than we think because we are no different outside of sovereign grace from King Sennacherib. And so God's people were delivered by the mighty hand of God, and we are reminded by that that our greatest enemies of sin and death cannot be defeated by human strength and human walls and human ingenuity. Self-help books and therapies, counselors and medicine will not defeat the inward enemy. We need the sovereign power of Almighty God. So we go on and we ask ourselves the question, is Judah now secure? Assyria has gone away? Not really. Because we see just as the problem in Sennacherib is his own heart, so it is with Judah. And you know, it's easy to get complacent. Judah gets complacent after Sennacherib leaves and the Assyrian army is decimated. And we are like this all the time. We get complacent, don't we? Perhaps you've had a big health threat that was averted or settled down a bit. Perhaps you had a narrow brush with death on the roads, but you mercifully walked away with nothing, unscathed. Maybe you've come upon a financial windfall, and God's mercies in the windfall become a snare to you. You see, we can take the merciful providences of God and start to find security in the providences and not in God himself. And that's what Israel starts to do. Hezekiah dies. And his 12-year-old son Manasseh takes his place. And Judah goes south fast. Manasseh is the most wicked king of Judah ever. And in spite of his wickedness, this is kind of staggering. Manasseh would reign so long that his reign would span over three Assyrian kings. That long. And think about the implication of that. Judah goes progressively worse and darker and darker, and God may permit a nation many, many years of wickedness. It will be in judgment that the nation, just like Judah, will heap more sins on herself and more judgment. And if you think about our nation, our nation that is spurning God, defiling his name, murdering the unborn, are we surprised how long our leader has been in power? This could be the very judgment of God on this dark nation of Canada. Now here's the interesting thing, because Judah, remember, was God's covenant people. And the worse Judah got, historically, the larger Assyria got. They had just been decimated, but they regrouped quickly. Judah goes down, Assyria expands. Really, their territory was from Egypt to Elam, which is southern Iran by the, um, by the uh, Persian Gulf. Assyria dominated the region and the nations. Think about some application. If the new covenant people 
the church of the living God, if we marginalize holiness, just like Judah did, if we get complacent like they did, then let's not be surprised with the corresponding expansion of wicked establishments around us. Right? As, as the church loses its witness and gets less bold and is less interested in holiness, the Assyrian, as it were, will expand. But God is not mocked. Assyria will fall. Nahum the prophet speaks about the sure fall of Assyria. But here's the interesting thing. It happened, the fall of Assyria happened not when Judah was great. It happened when Judah was at its worst, at the bottom of its moral um, life. In the darkest time, God brought judgment on the Assyrians. When the covenant community was unfaithful, God was faithful to vindicate his holy name. And so we must remember as we look at this, that the final destruction of God's enemies is not based on our faithfulness. It is God's faithfulness. We sang it, great is thy faithfulness. God's faithfulness. It is his faithfulness to his name, to his glory. It is the sure victory we see in Jesus Christ. After Manasseh died, Ammon, his son, succeeds him. But he was assassinated after only two years by his servants. Now, we, that is interesting because compared to the other nations where assassinations of kings was kind of commonplace, this is rare in Judah. And that shows God's mercy to the Davidic line, that assassination attempts are very different. In fact, in the northern kingdom, which was now already gone into captivity, ten different dynasties had ruled in those few 300 years over Israel, the north. In the south, how many dynasties? One. The line of David. Only that line. This amazing. Now things are ramping up because for Judah, the nation, everything changes on the date of 606 BC. Keep that one in mind. 606 we're going to get back to that. Watch for that date. So after Ammon, who got assassinated, we get reprieve. Josiah comes in, and he reigns from 640 to 609. So we're getting really close to that 606 date. Most likely, somewhere during the reign of King Josiah, has Habakkuk was born. So just start to remember, he would have grown up seeing all these things. We're not sure when he got born, but somewhere most likely during this reign. Josiah was a godly king. At the age of 16, the Bible says he began to seek after the Lord. He purged wickedness out of the nation. And here's the interesting thing. I will read a passage or a verse here and notice what it says about Josiah's boldness. It says, he cleansed, this is Second Chronicles 34, 5, he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem, and so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto Naphtali. Now, what's so striking about that? They were the captivated people, right? So there was just a little remnant left up in the north. Who, who ran the shop up there? Assyria and Josiah brings reformational reform and, 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 and sanctifies not just Judah, he, it spills over into the northern kingdom. He dares to provoke the God of the Assyrians and the Assyrian people. That is bravery. Think about that. Believing courage is needed 
to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Josiah is a great example that he, he is not hindered by the pagan powerhouse Assyrians. Believing courage is needed to boldly stand when it's not popular. It wasn't popular in Josiah's days. And so what will you do? What will we do? Fathers, will you lead your homes courageously against the tide of these times? Mothers, will you nurture your children consistently with the word of God even though the curriculum may demand otherwise, you will not compromise. Take courage. And may that courage spill over into our community. In spite of Josiah's faithfulness, God's judgment on Judah was set. Turn with me, please, to 2 Kings 23. Verse 26, 2 Kings 23, 26. Notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. So far, a major upheaval is about to occur in Judah. We are now in the year 610 BC. And at this time, we're not going to focus right away here on Judah but something that is happening to Assyria. Remember, Nahum predicted that Assyria would fall. Which nation would do it? Who would God raise up? The Chaldeans. Babylon. In 610, the Babylonian armies crippled Assyrian forces. And this is when Josiah makes his fatal move because he died intercepting the Egyptian army that is coming up from the south to help the Assyrians. And at the battle of Megiddo, he foolishly intercepts the Egyptian army. And the king of Egypt even says, why are you meddling? This is not your fight. And he gets proud and he does so anyways. God hadn't told him to do this, but King Josiah did this. And in 609, Josiah dies in the battle of Megiddo. There's an application we can take from this. As the Old Covenant people, so the New Covenant Church must stay on her mission. The church cannot meddle in areas outside of her biblically commanded spheres. The primary mission of the church is the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God. The church is not called to become prime minister or to be as influencing as the Roman Catholic was the Roman Catholic Church in history was to the nations where they basically started dictating the state. Did you know that the mourning for King Josiah, because he was so great for Judah, lasted for up to a hundred years, which puts us in the time of the restoration of Israel after, or, yeah, Judah after um, captivity. So, 
Getting back to Josiah, he's dead at 609, and we're only three years away now from that pivotal date of 606. After his death, three sons would reign in succession. The first is Jehoahaz. We read about him. He's quickly deposed. Guess who deposes him? We read it. It wasn't his own people. It was the Egyptians. King Nico. Josiah had meddled, and now they would pay the price. You know, you meddle in spheres that do not belong to you. It will cost you. History is replete with examples of the church meddling with the state. And guess what the state then does? Meddles back with the church. And we see that over and over again. And when that happens, the covenant community gets toxified. Jehoiakim was pompous. And he exploited the people. That was the king that the Egyptian army had put in place. King Nico had put up Jehoiakim. And so the prophet Jeremiah tells us that that king would die in shame. He actually says this. He says, he shall be buried, Jeremiah twenty-two nineteen. he shall be buried with the burial of an ass drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. And he was because King Nico took him and he died in Egypt. And it is such an example of this exploiting king in the dark times of Judah that he basically ruins his own nation, he taxes them to death, he builds up his own house, it's the shame that he would die in that is so interesting. What an example of the shame that will come upon pompous leaders. You look throughout world history, leaders that have tyrannized their people will often die in shame. Nobody likes them. And so that is a judgment that God has. And this is where history now will turn, and it turns hard. And that will bring us to the second point, Habakkuk's concern. He's very much alive in this time now. Did you know that there were actually three deportations or exiles into Babylon? We always talk about the Babylonian exile, but there was actually three times the Babylonian army came in and took people. The first one is that date that I just talked about, 606. At that date, people like Daniel got exiled into Babylon. The other one is 597, so just uh, you know, a little bit of years, nine years later or so, which includes men like Ezekiel. The last one is 587 BC, which is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So there's three exiles. Here's how it unfolds. In the providence of God, the powerful commander-in-chief Nebuchadnezzar, who was not yet king, makes the bold move to cross the Euphrates River. And at this battle that transpires, he decisively wipes out the Assyrian army. It's done. And he establishes at that date Babylonian dominance. 2 Kings 24 verse 7 talks about this. When it says, and the king of Egypt came not again any more out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken from the river of Egypt unto the river Euphrates all that pertained to the king of Egypt. Assyria was already weakened, now he destroys Egyptian dominance, and Babylon reigns supreme, and Nebuchadnezzar, after that battle, becomes the king. 
ruler supreme. The battle is known in history as the Battle of Carchemish. Keep that one in mind because we may hear about it in a future sermon. The Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC. The reason we bring this all up, it is because Habakkuk was probably prophesying and the book was written just before that battle. And his words aren't very popular. And so his concern is very real. Back to Judah, Jehoiakim, which is Jehoiakim's son, he thinks he's a smart guy and he foolishly joins a revolt against Nebuchadnezzar, which leads to the great siege of the second exile of 597 B.C., And what happens when you take on Babylon, when God says, I will bring them down to judge you, you don't win. And they don't win. And he is taken captive with men like Ezekiel, like I mentioned. But you know what happens in the second exile is really interesting. Turn again to 2 Kings 24, verse 14, to take note. 2 Kings 24 talks about this. 14, and it says that he, being Nebuchadnezzar, carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives. And then notice what's next. And all the craftsmen and smiths, none remained save the poorest sort of the people of the land. So the entire economic and military well-being of Judah is taken away. And so only the poorest, those who had very little were left. In this time, Zedekiah is propped up by Nebuchadnezzar as king. He's still in the line of David. He's Jehoiakim's uncle. And showing the hardness of the human heart, if you don't believe the human heart is hard, this might help you. He also decides to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't a good idea, and that brought the final destruction in 587. So Habakkuk's life and ministry was surrounded by destruction, rebellion, and despair. With the growing godlessness in society and the degraded morals that we see around us, when we look at our televisions or listen to our podcasts or see what's going on in our communities, perhaps we remember, as Habakkuk would, that we minister in the time in our nation when in very many ways our nation is under judgment. And we need to speak to our churches that are left in our communities, to brothers and sisters when we visit with them, and to society. And what we find out is as armies move and as nations come and go, history is not random. The things that have befallen you and me, the smallest things, the big things, are not fluke or chance events. Did you notice that these were real choices of armies and kings and nations? Every stroke of the sword was the choice of a person, and they were the consequences of those choices. We reap what we sow. And at the same time, overarching all those choices of soldiers and kings and smiths and artisans and everything else, people like you and me, is the sovereign God who is working through it all to orchestrate his redemptive plan for his people, his plan of love and mercy. And they are perfectly being accomplished. Which brings me to the final point, Habakkuk's king. 
Because we've looked at Habakkuk's place in history, we must now look at where this prophecy is in redemptive history. 2 Kings 7 verse 13 is very clear. Turn there again. It's close if you've stayed in Kings. 2 Kings 17 verse 13, echoing what we read in uh, 2 Chronicles, where God says, Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers, saying, Turn ye from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. You see, the prophets are like covenant lawyers. They are enforcing the law of God, which Josiah incidentally rediscovered, and he wept when he saw what would come on the nation, and the prophets were there to remind Judah and Israel constantly about God's law. Habakkuk then was one of many prophets that spoke. His life overlapped with Nahum, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. Now, why would God raise up a prophet who speaks of sure doom? That's what he did. He spoke of doom, right? It is because doom, when it comes from the prophet of God, should not, for the people of God, lead to gloom. In spite of international upheaval, what we are going to see as we go through this book is that a response of repentance and faith are always still the right answer. In our greatest hours of need, and they may be for you very dark right now, are you going to find strength in your medical system, in your bank account, in your insurance policies, in your politicians, as we are so prone to do, or in the covenant God? Habakkuk shows us that in spite of Judah's failures, God does not throw up his hands with his people. He's not finished with his people. Unlike us who would have long ago disinherited any people, God does not start over. No, it is precisely through his prophets, which he sends, he speaks both judgment and hope. Now, that's interesting, because I thought about that. He speaks judgment and hope. Does your theology have room for both? It's easy to acknowledge, oh, yeah, it's in the Bible. But does your theology have room for it? Because when it comes, and when your life may turn a completely upside down, do you recognize the sovereign hand of God in it, that he's maybe bringing judgment upon you, upon me? Do you have room for that in your theology? And hope. Hope is great. Hope is from our God. Our God is a God of hope. It is shocking to think that God... God's focus on this tiny nation will prove his unswerving purposes that will be fulfilled to all the nations, right? His hand is so steady upon his people to chastise them, rebuke them, judge them. And at the same time, this entire thread of redemptive history is for all the nations to fulfill his promise that the Messiah for everyone would come. You know, it might be when we look at the dwindling church in Canada that we are maybe afraid of the future. Maybe you're afraid for your children. What Canada will they grow up in? Should we stay in this nation? Why not move somewhere else? Do you fear the future? It's easy to. Because you look around you, just like Habakkuk did, 
It doesn't look good. Remember, God will not stop honoring his word. It came then through the prophets, right? He spoke his word. He was faithful precisely in these prophets speaking judgment to show that he had not given up. His word would stand. He spoke then through the prophets and the book of Hebrews says he speaks now through the Son in these last days and those words, Old and New Testaments, are galvanized in the written word. It is secured here and so the people of God can have hope as we apply our faith in believing the word of God. God says, he promises, my word will not return void. It will accomplish what it is set out to do. Though nations come and go, Canada may not be in a hundred years, but God's kingdom is forever. The word of God abides. So take hope in the very fact that he speaks even through prophets of judgment. Now what's striking as we go through the book of Habakkuk, we're going to see that there's no mention at all of the Messiah. So what's going on? How do we find hope in that? Why did he not mention the Messiah? Now one commentator mentions that it could be because of the stench of Manasseh's incredible wickedness that was still oozing, as it were, from Judah. You see, for anyone to receive a message of hope, they must first come to grips with the rancid smell of their own sinfulness. And God may bring someone very deep. Because have you ever ministered to somebody who's going through incredibly dark times and you bring the word of God to them and they still hang on with all their might to their idols? They love their idols so much. So dark is the human heart. And so judgment may go deeper and further. False securities first need to be supplanted before true security can be offered. Judah was way too self-confident. What gets into the head of two kings to take on Nebuchadnezzar? You wonder that. The human heart. Jeremiah puts his finger right on it when he says in chapter 7, verse 4, remember, he's ministering at the same time as Habakkuk. He says, Trust ye not in lying words. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. That's what they were doing. They're like, oh, we're good. We're not going to fall because, sure, the north fell, but we have the temple. God's not going to forsake the temple. And so they just basically thought they could live as they did because they had the temple. Do you do that? Do you trust in your religion? Oh, I'm a Christian. In your church attendance? I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I do my prayers. You're saying the same thing. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Don't say that. If inside you think you have any merit before God because you're just doing your duties. That's not Christianity. And it will not stand on the day of judgment. Can you answer this question honestly? Here's the question. Why do I need a Messiah? It's very personal. Why do I need a Messiah? Think about that. Maybe ask other Christians that question. 
Why do you think you need a Messiah? Theologically, Habakkuk confronts us with another question. And it is this question. If the city of David could fall and would fall, what about the line of David? Because God had promised that there would not cease one to be on the throne, but the city of David was going to be in ruins in just a a short order. Similarly, we could ask this question for our times. If local churches can be shut down, if they can fall, what about the church of Christ? You see, what we're going to find as we go through Habakkuk is he is going to destroy human expectations, human built-up messiahs. They can even be in our little churches here. We can come up with and construct our own hopes. It's easy to confuse God's promises, God's expectations and plans of the Messiah with our own ideas and our own hopes. Perhaps, perhaps you think that going to a new church, maybe you've been here for just a little in short order, will fix some of the problems going on in your marriage or in your family. Perhaps you think, oh, if I attend this Bible study, surely that is going to solve my lack of growth. Perhaps you're disillusioned because you set so much hope in the Christian who was elected to office and nothing really changed. And you had all your expectations built on that. Perhaps you sought too much from a Christian counselor or pastor. You see, what we're going to find from Habakkuk is that God alone can fulfill our hopes. It's not the doing of all kinds of stuff. It is the embracing of God in in light of doing good things. But it is God himself that we need to look to. And so the rod of the Lord, his chastisement on his covenant people may be used to destroy, to pop a hole in those expectations that we've built up where God is not at the center. Habakkuk, like many of the prophets, will show us that Judah's ideas of the Messiah, of the line of David, would come to an end. But the line of David wouldn't come to an end. The kings that descended from David would be taken into captivity. But the line of David will triumph. God would not end the line, but he will end the rule of human expectations. He will install his king in Zion in a way that Judah had not expected it. It will not be because of the walls of Jerusalem. It will be because of the faithfulness of God himself. You see, Israel... It needs a king, all right. We need a king, but God alone can be that king. And through the judgment of Judah, God is moving from a general corporate sense of King David, the king, a whole bunch of series of kings, to an individual one, to one king. One king that he had in mind when he says, I will set my king upon your throne and he will reign forever. And when in Psalm 2 it says, I have set my holy king on Zion. And when he calls him, what does he call him there in Psalm 2? The anointed one. You know what the anointed one is in Hebrew? Mashiach, the Messiah. That is the line of David, the king, the greater son of David that God always had in view. And so he would burst human expectations. 
and the pride of human kings to set up his own king. There is none greater than King Jesus because he reigns forever and ever. Habakkuk shows us that human beings, even those in the line of hope, cannot be our hope. Hope cannot be in our church confessions, in our constitutions, in our seminars, in our therapies. Expectations for the future cannot be founded in your elders or in your spouse, but in the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've got to remember, Habakkuk spoke when Babylonian dominance was already being felt, as it were, in Judah. You can imagine the news coming about the Battle of Carchemish and Assyrian and Egyptian forces fell and the people of Judah were in terror for this new mighty nation that was coming up from the Euphrates, from, from the other side of the Euphrates. And Habakkuk says, yeah, things will get worse. You see, all of Judah's earthly possessions and countless lives would be lost and God wanted it so. It's a hard message to hear, isn't it? Imagine being Judah, but what if God calls that same message to you? We lose everything. Jesus says he does not forsake father or mother and sister and brother. He's not worthy of me. Are you willing to count the cost? Perhaps you've gotten a hard message lately. Perhaps it's a diagnosis of health and you've had to check in on your health and realize it will never be the same anymore. Perhaps you've been given a reality check on your finances. Perhaps a reality check on the child you've been praying for and they were only walking further away. Perhaps it's a collapsing marriage and the news was not comfortable. It is not what you wanted to hear. Perhaps that's where you are this morning. And the anticipation that it'll only get worse, the anticipation of the loss of all material and physical things leaves us, as it did for Habakkuk, in the despair, telling his own people, his own kin, things are only going to get worse. What is he left with? What are you left with? What am I left with when everything is wiped from the table? What are we left with? God as the only enduring reality. You see, God is more to be desired than all earthly realities. In fact, it is precisely through the losses that we can learn through these chastisements, through these disciplines, and through these judgments that earthly realities, the things that we tend to grasp onto, and the things we enjoy, health and prosperity and family, they can only find their true orbit when God is at the center. And God will use judgment to make that plain. Throughout Habakkuk, we're going to see two major themes. The first one, justice and judgment. God will bring every work into judgment, whether it be good or evil. Justice will always triumph over injustice. It's a hope. Actually, the judgment on Israel or Judah are examples that God is just. So it raises our understanding of who God is. We serve a just God. But Habakkuk highlights something else that is totally unpopular in today's, largely in today's church culture. Modern Christianity has a lot of room for the judgment of God 
to be restorative, but not always retributive. Retribution is punishment. For many of the people of Judah, this would be the end of their lives, and there would be no restoration. You see, punishment is not the same as chastisement. God may punish to destroy, or he may punish to restore. And Habakkuk teaches us that both are in God's prerogative to do, and he's just when he does either. Do we deserve forbearance? Do we deserve forgiveness? Does God owe it to us to bring us to heaven? No. And Habakkuk reminds us of that. He also shows us that God's judgments in history are precursors. They're foretastes of final judgment. But notice again, retribution and chastisement. Assyria fell. Babylon fell. And they will be judged and gone. Judah fell. But God would restore his people. The same judgments have different ends. God has inscrutable purposes. Have you considered, have you thought about how God's judgments throughout history speak? The son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, came out from a nation of judgment, but a nation that was not destroyed, right? Because we know Judah would rise again because the God who gave the judgment to his people. In case you have a problem with a dark message like Habakkuk, remember that he would judge Judah. Judah would never again have a king until 600 years later, the king of kings would come down when Judah was still under some sort of a yoke, under the Roman yoke, under a new empire, and the king of kings comes down as a lamb and takes all of the judgment of all in his mind of election, all of sinners who have been covenanted to him from eternity, he takes their sin on himself. The lamb died, took the judgment to save sinners, and that same line, lamb, sorry, would then rise to be the lion of the tribe of Judah who would crush the enemies of God. Secondly, Covenant and salvation is seen throughout this book. Now, I don't know if you've read Habakkuk ahead or if you've read it before. What you'll notice is there's some key words that are completely absent. We saw the word Messiah is absent. But you know another word that is completely absent from this? It's a word that's used over 200 times in the Old Testament Hebrew, the word barit, which means covenant. Absolutely not there. And yet the covenant God is going to destroy his covenant land. Not once does Habakkuk mention the covenant. Yet the covenant God of Israel is the grid upon which Habakkuk speaks. He assumes the covenant God. In fact, we know this because although the word barit is never used, you know which word is used many times? The word Jehovah. The covenant name of God is absolutely, it runs thick through the prophets. No less this prophet. So Habakkuk assumes the categories of covenant, which assumes then merciful election, which assumes peculiar relationship, and it presumes and assumes a nation called to holiness. 
And really the mission of Habakkuk is to underline, to underscore what the covenant stipulations are and who this covenant God really is. Believer, does God today to you seem distant, aloof, disinterested in your life? Maybe that's what you're thinking. Does his chastising hand seem heavy, too much? I heard that a couple of weeks ago. This is too much for me. And you quote 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no trial will he bring which we cannot bear. And then the excuse is, yes, but this one I cannot handle. This is too much. Well, the very words of the prophet Habakkuk reminds us that God is most interested, first of all, in his glory, his name being reflected but being reflected in a people he has chosen to himself. And he will not let the believer go because in the believer is his covenant name and he will hold the believer fast. Take courage in our covenant, God. The last thing we need to see as we go through Habakkuk is its structure. Because the amazing part of this prophet as opposed to other prophets is that it is the response of the prophet that will actually communicate a message. It will see what he does. Because Habakkuk personally witnesses what happens. He proclaims it before it happens. He watches his own people being stripped of everything. And we get in the mercy and sovereignty of God his response put in Scripture. And what we're going to see is that his response shows what we all need, a mature submission in faith. A mature Christian who holds fast to the sovereign goodness of God precisely when the storm clouds are the most ominous, the darkest clouds. What does the mature believer do? Submit and believe. We will see That his is a faith that rejoices in the knowledge, not of Judah's lands and goods and walls, but in the knowledge that God is establishing a kingdom of righteousness. Do you long for that? That the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters covered the sea. You see, there's three chapters in this book. And the first chapter is God's protest. The second chapter is the wisdom of God in resolving the problem of the people. But the last chapter is the prophet's response of submission. God speaks, God answers, and his people respond. That's what we're called to. How are we going to respond? Are you ready for what God may call you to see in this book? Because we can respond to chastisements and afflictions with anger, contempt, and unbelief. Or we can respond with a maturing faith, one that is growing, looking more to God and humbly submitting, being willing to confess, being willing to own your own sins and to trust God. You see, though everything is removed from believers... Believers will never lose, as Habakkuk knows, the ultimate blessing, God himself. 
as the mind of Christ is growing in us, it will mean resting more and more in the all-wise wisdom of God. And trials that you are facing today, maybe next week, maybe next year, they are opportunities. They are means of grace. The very bitter hardships are the very point of growth. And that's what's interesting about Habakkuk. The hardship is what God uses to refine us as we have to chew through the bitter taste of affliction. He is shaping us. How? How is he shaping you? How is he shaping me to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ? And you know what it does? Because Habakkuk's last response shows us what it does. Habakkuk prays. It reminds me of what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. You know what he taught them? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know that prayer, we memorize it as kids, and it's easy to recite. But the heart of it only becomes real when you're stripped. Stripped naked of human expectations. Stripped naked of everything you sought your refuge in, and you found God himself as the true source of joy. Jesus Christ, our great Savior, turn to him. Pray, O God, may I see my sin as you see your sin, and my Savior as you see the great Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of the prophets who spoke of old hard words and yet showed in the response submission to you. Lord God, I pray that you would shape us as we go through this book. I pray that you would humble us, that you would bring us to our knees. Lord, that we would find in you alone our refuge and our strength and an ever-present help in times of trouble. In Jesus' name, amen.